Good morning. This is the first Sunday of Advent. But actually, we're going to begin where we left off last. We've been looking as a church at the book of 1 Corinthians. So if you want to first turn there, it's where we left off last. But it's also going to serve as the gateway into our new Advent series. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, Paul says this, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. According to the Scriptures, Paul is saying that Jesus comes with a backstory. That when Jesus comes into the world as a baby born in Bethlehem, that it's not a new thing, but rather an old thing made new. That when Jesus is born as a baby in Bethlehem, he is keeping a promise made eons before. That when Jesus is born as a baby in Bethlehem, A kingdom has come. And that's what we're going to be looking at over the next four Sundays of Advent. We're going to be zooming out from the Christmas story as we popularly know it. And we're going to look at Jesus' history. The history into which Jesus comes. The story has four acts. It's a play with four acts, if you will. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And we're going to look at those four themes. That's actually the story of the Bible. And we're going to look at the four themes of that story over the next four Sundays. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Jesus would even say when he begins his ministry in Mark chapter 1 verse 15, he says this, the kingdom of God is at hand. The time is fulfilled The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And so what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to try to look at what that means when Jesus says the kingdom has come. Where in the world does he get that from? What does that even mean? And why in the world would that be good news? So that's what we're going to do over the next four Sundays is talk about the kingdom and why Jesus is such good news when he arrives. So let's turn to Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning of the Bible. If you're using one of the Bibles that are there in the pew, uh, in the chair rack, rather, fittingly enough, it's on page 1. It should be pretty easy to find. Genesis chapter 1. Let's pray and ask for God's help in understanding his word. God in heaven, we are reminded again that you are a speaking God, that you have given us your word and you've given it us, you've given it to us so that we may have life. Indeed, the word incarnate is your son, Jesus. Not only was he there at creation, 
But he was also sent for our redemption, that we may have life. And that that life is the light of men, and that that light has shone in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So Lord, now as we go back to the beginning, maybe an uncharacteristic place for a Christmas, for an Advent sermon, as we go back to the beginning, would you stir up our imaginations, help us to see, help us to understand, help us to hear what you are saying in your word. We pray for the reading and the hearing and the preaching of your word and that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 1, this is going to be a little bit different uh, from... Uh, our normal sermons, I won't be reading the entire chapter of Genesis 1 and I won't be reading both chapters of Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, I'll be reading select portions of those and, and speaking to each one of them. So, uh, but let's start in Genesis 1 and we're going to read verses 1 through 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. What I want to see, what I want us to see as we look at these opening chapters of the Bible, even though the word kingdom uh, doesn't appear here, what we're actually seeing is God's kingdom revealed. And it's revealed at creation when God's people are living in God's place under God's rule. And I'm borrowing that definition from a book, from a couple of books, actually. If you want to know more about uh, about this topic of how the story of the Bible unfolds, there are at least two books I would recommend to you. The first is by a man named Graham Goldsworthy, and it's called According to Plan. All right, Graham Goldsworthy, according to plan. And then uh, a slightly less scholarly or less academic book, uh, but it actually takes Goldsworthy stuff and boils it down a little bit further, is a book by Vaughn Roberts. Uh, it's called God's Big Picture. Vaughn Roberts, God's Big Picture. So if you want to, to know more, uh, you can pick up one of those books. Speaking of books, by the way, uh, we are gonna, we are closing out our resource table in the back. And so, uh, for, uh, for the month, for the foreseeable future, but certainly for the month of December, everything on the table is a dollar. Right? Everything on the table is a dollar. So, uh, grab a book, drop a dollar in the box. We're gonna, we're, we are, we are closing it out. So make sure that, uh, sadly those two books are not on the table, but you can borrow mine if you want. All right, so 
God's people living in God's place under God's rule. What I want us, what I want us to look at this morning, uh, we're going to look at it under three headings. God creates and governs by His Word. God creates and governs mankind in His image. And then God is good. And He loves what He has made. So God creates and governs by His Word. God creates and governs mankind in His image. And God is good, and He loves what He has made. And then hopefully we can draw that back in to Advent and Jesus. So let's jump in. God creates and governs by His Word. A uh, couple of things that, uh, that we want to say about these early verses... I want you to notice something about this earth, right? About this place that, that God creates in, in verse 2. It says, the earth was without form and void. It was, in other words, it was formless and it was empty. There was no form and there was nothing to fill it. Uh, if you want to pour a sidewalk or a curb or the foundation for a house, you need two things. You need a form, and you need concrete to pour into that form. Both of those are crucial. The earth, uh, as it stands before creation, has neither. There is neither form nor filling, right? It is a waterless, or excuse me, it is a, uh, it is a deep, right? It says the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. It is, uh, it is a void. Some would say a chaotic void, and yet there's a, there's a message of hope there. It says the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. The, that word hovering uh, is used later in the Bible to talk about the, the fluttering of a, of a bird over its young, right? Uh, and so this life-giving Spirit is fluttering over uh, what is about to happen, uh, what is this creative action that's about to take place? And what we see, and I just read for you day one, but what we see happen over the course of the next six days is that God creates the form and the filling. He answers this chaotic problem of no form and no content. He creates them both. In days one through three, he creates the form. Day and night. Sky and water, earth. And then in days four, five, and six, perfectly parallel, he fills up the form. Sun, moon, and stars, fish and birds, animals and humans. And so God, in, over the course of creation days, in the same pattern, uh, there's the same pattern for every day. God speaks, something happens, and he declares it good. That's the creation pattern. God speaks, something happens, exactly what he says comes to pass, and then he declares that it is good. And all of that uh, is full of meaning for us. Right? So God doesn't just create inanimate objects, but he creates living things and creatures. Not only that, but if you were to read the whole chapter, you would see that he creates the things, uh, the, the, the means by which all of those things reproduce. Right? All of those things built into them is the way that they will create more. So God is at work in the processes even of creation. He's at work in the margins beyond what we can see at the universal cosmic level, beyond 
the reach of our farthest telescopes, God is at work. And he is at work at the subatomic level. Further down than anything that we currently have can see, God is at work in his creation. And how does he do all of that? He does it by his word. He speaks. He rules, he creates, and he rules by his word. Now, when was the last time, just so, just so we see how remarkable this is, when was the last time that you just said something and it happened? Automatically, without delay, without argument. Right? That you just spoke and it happened. Never, right, is the right answer to that question. Right? Um, every creation day begins with God simply speaking. He speaks matter into existence. And then in Hebrews, it says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That his word is what sustains the universe. That for a moment, if God's, if God withdrew his word, the universe would cease to exist. One of the remarkable observations that is made about our universe, and there's a, there's several of these markers, and of course I've forgotten most of them, though good apologists will remember uh, all of these things. But if you look at the universe, it is expanding at a constant rate. If it expanded any faster, it would cease to exist. And if it expanded any slower, it would implode on itself. Our universe is expanding at a constant rate. Uh, and there are other, there are several, several other constants at work in the universe. And the odds that all of those constants would come together, um, are astronomical, right? God is upholding the universe by the word of his power. He created it and he sustains it. He rules it by his word. So what? What does that mean for us? Well, God's word represents his absolute freedom and his absolute sovereignty, his absolute control. And when I say absolute, I mean without reference to anything else. He is totally free and he is totally in control. What do I mean by free? I mean that, that nothing compels God to act. He does it of his own volition and freedom. There is not something missing in God. God is not lonely. That is not why God creates. God creates out of his fullness, not to plug a hole in himself. Okay? God is absolutely free. And we can't fathom that because even the most innovative and creative among us are still responders. If you are an entrepreneur or a creator here this morning, even, even that, right, even, you are even responding to a need that you perceive. That is not God. God is absolutely free, uh, in His authority. He's totally in control. Nothing, nothing happens that He does not desire to take place. Everything happens that He's, that He desires to happen. And all by his word. He doesn't have to coax creation into doing what he wants it to do. He simply says, light. And there was light. 
Not only that, not only does God uh, create, do, create creation, create and govern by His Word, but He has a special relationship with mankind. He creates and governs humans in His image. That same creation pattern happens through days one through six, and it applies also to man, but in a unique way. Look at day six, Genesis 1, 26 through 31. This is at the end of day six, after the earth has brought forth uh, all the living animals. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Excuse me, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. There's that authority phrase, by the way, and it was so. He just said it, and it was so. And God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Now, there's lots of things, uh, lots of implications that can be drawn from these verses. I just want to focus on a couple of them this morning. First, I want you to notice that we receive our identity from God. That who we are comes not from within us, but from Him. We are made male and female in His image. He is the one who determines us. We are not self-determined. He determines us like the rest of creation. We are created and governed by his word. He is a speaking God and he says who we are. Look in uh, chapter 2 there of Genesis. God, um, Moses takes chapter 2 and it's a, it's a parallel count of creation, but it focuses on the creation of man. Genesis 2, 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And then skipping down, God creates this uh, beautiful garden. And in verse 15, it says this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So God creates the man, he gives him his identity, and he sets the boundaries. He says, here's what you're to do. 
Here's what you are to be, right? He puts him in this garden to work it and keep it. And so work comes before the fall, right? Work is good. It is a part of God's created order. God creates the man. He creates the environment in which he will live and work and then tells him how to relate to everything else. Tells him how these relationships are going to work. So we receive our identity from God. We also receive our calling from God. Do you notice that by his word, God places humans over the rest of creation to exercise dominion, his dominion, uh, to rule in his name. Right? We are to reflect, human beings are meant to reflect God's kingly rule to the rest of creation. And that's what we see the first man doing in chapter 2, verse 19. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. Adam is the first scientist. Right? God brings all of these creatures that he has made. He's the creator. But then he hands them over to Adam. And what does Adam do? He observes and he characterizes. Right? He observes and he gives it a name. He's the first scientist. He explains what it is that he sees. He classifies the creation. So that means uh, one of the things that we can draw from this is that God relates to the rest of creation through humanity. God relates to the rest of creation through humanity. Now that may seem strange, but it's why Paul can say in Romans chapter 8 in the New Testament that, the, that all of creation is eagerly waiting for the redemption of God's people. Because when God's people are revealed, then the creation will be set free. That at some point, because of the actions of man, creation has been subjected to bondage and decay. But that when man is redeemed, creation will be redeemed. Now, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. We're going to see that as we move through the story. But it's enough right here to say that God relates to creation through humanity. That he gives, it's God, man, creation. And man is meant to reflect God's good kingly rule to the rest of the world. So we receive our identity from God. We receive our calling from God. So it's clear that humanity has a special dignity, a special place in God's plan. And I would argue a special place in God's heart. If you go and look at Psalm 8, you don't have to turn there now, but if you go to Psalm 8, it's a whole psalm praising God for his majestic works and his majestic name. But right in the middle of the psalm, after, after the psalmist praises God for his majesty and all his works, he says this, what is man that you are mindful of him? You've made him a little bit lower than the angels, but you have set him in dominion over all your works. What is man? that you are mindful of Him. And on the face of it, maybe we don't look all that impressive. But what the Bible tells us is that men and women, boys and girls, of every shape, of every color, 
are more worthy or more valuable than the purest gold, are more astonishing than the highest Everest. That mankind has a special dignity and a special place in God's heart that the rest of creation does not. Why else do you think God becomes a man to rescue men? He doesn't become a cat. He doesn't become a bull, right? He becomes a human being because He loves human beings and human beings are the ones that need to be redeemed. God creates and governs the world. God creates and governs mankind. And then finally, God is good. And He loves what He has made. Where do we see God's goodness in these chapters? We see it at the end of every creation day. God looks at what He has made and He says, It's good. And then at the very end, in verse 31 of chapter 1, He says, He looks at all of it the whole package, and says it's very good. We see it in the abundance of creation. We see it in the garden that he places Adam in. Look at chapter 2, verse 9. It says, Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree, catch this, that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. God creates diversity in His creation and it looks good, right? It's pleasant to the sight. So the reason that the leaves change color in seasons and make us go, wow, is because God is good. He has built that into His creation. The reason that the food we eat is tasty is because God builds it into the creations, because God is good. We see God's goodness in how He makes woman to complement man. That it is not good for man to be alone. And so, He makes woman as the perfect match, the perfect fit, the perfect complement. We see God's goodness in all of these things. And God's goodness reveals His love. Throughout Genesis 1 and 2, God is not a distant mechanical process. He is a loving and deeply committed creator. Did you notice how he formed man from the dust? And then what did he do? He breathed life into his nostrils. Right, the image, I don't know if this is physically what happened, but Moses is very very clearly trying to engage our imaginations almost almost of a mouth being placed over man's nose and the breath of life entering his lungs. God is not some distant mechanical process. He is a deeply invested creator who loves what he has made. What do we do with that? First, we need to say it's that God is the one who determines what is good. It is God who says, right, it's, it's not self-evident or baked into creation. A pine tree doesn't just sprout from the ground and say, I'm good. No, God looks at it and says, you're good. 
God looks at what he has made and he declares what is good. It is not the creation itself that determines goodness. It's God. God, God, the good God defines what it means to be good in every sense of that word. If something is truly beautiful, it is truly beautiful because God says it's so. If something is truly just or right, it is truly just or right because God says it is so. If something is really good, it is good because God says it is so. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. That's James 1.17. And here's what that means. It means that goodness permeates the created order. Because God is the one who speaks it, because God is the one who creates it and sustains it, and He is good, and He declares it to be very good, then goodness permeates everything He has made. It means at this moment in history, there is perfect harmony. There's perfect harmony in every relationship that God has created. There's harmony between God and man. There's harmony between man and man. And by the way, I know I keep using the word man. I simply use that because that's what the book does. But know that I'm referring to humans. Ladies, you're not left out when I use the word man. I mean mankind. That's what the Bible means, okay? But there's harmony between God and people. There, there is harmony between people and people. Perfect harmony. And there's harmony between people and the creation. Everything is as it should be. All is right with the world. You know that feeling you get? Maybe you get it on vacation. Maybe you get it at a sunrise. Or maybe you get it when you're snuggling with your parents in the bed, right? Um, that feeling that all is right with the world. That trouble is far off. That nothing could, could bother the, the perfection of this moment. I think those are echoes of Eden. I think those are whispers of a time when everything was right, when there was harmony, when nothing was wrong. And that's the basic meaning of the kingdom of God. Not simply the sense that everything's right, but that the kingdom of God exists when God's people live in God's place under his loving rule. When that happens, all is right. When that happens, we have shalom, right? The Hebrew word for peace. Not simply the end of hostility, but the sense that everything is good and right. That is what it means. That is, the, that is what the kingdom produces. And that seems a bit like a fairy tale, doesn't it? Something too good to actually be true. Because even if you, even if you're here this morning, you don't believe the Bible, or you're unfamiliar with what it says, you know that the description I just gave has not been true in your own experience. In fact, it's probably very far from your everyday experience. All is not right with the world. And without getting too far into next week's sermon, I want to go back and I want to look at that tree, Genesis 2, 15, excuse me, 16 through 17. The Lord God commanded the man, you may surely 
eat. It's the way our English translates uh, the Hebrew way of emphasizing a phrase. You, if you were uh, going to make it literal, you might almost say, eating you will eat. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Same construction. Dying you will die. In the midst of the garden, God gives this first man a boundary. A test of his obedience, if you will. It's not that this tree is somehow magical or has special powers. Rather, it represents a test for the man. Will he continue to trust God concerning what is good and evil? Will he allow God to define good and evil for him? Or will he attempt to define it for himself? Will he take and eat that which God has forbidden? And when he does, right right now there is harmony. Right now... There is life. But if he takes and eats what is forbidden to him, he will die. And he will break the world. And, spoiler alert, that's exactly what he does. Rather than allow God to define good and evil for him, he attempts to define it for himself and comes into a knowledge of good and evil that all of us wish we'd never had. He broke, the, he broke God's rule and broke the world. And so we read in Romans 5, 18 and 19, these words. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men whole section of Romans 5 is about how uh, death enters the world through one man. Verse 12, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam's one act of trespass leads to condemnation for all. But this, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. That there is hope for those who have broken God's rule. There is hope for those who have looked at the king and said, I want none of your kingdom. And that hope comes in the form of the king himself coming into a world that has rebelled and saying, the kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray. God in heaven, so much more that we could say, even as we sing joy to the world, We sing it because we know that there's not joy in the world. That many days there is something so far from joy. 
because we have wandered so far from you. And yet the reason that we can proclaim and sing joy to the world is because the rightful king has come. And his one act of righteousness, he has spilled his own precious blood so that traitors and rebels may come in to the kingdom. O Lord, would you cause us to turn from our sin, from defining life as we would have it, from determining, from trying to take your place as the rightful king and acknowledging that we have gotten it wrong and trusting in the one who gets it right. May we see and worship and believe in Jesus anew. We pray it in His matchless name. Amen.